Welcome back to the Transient Bacon Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Today, we have Eddie Owens, who is the refuge manager at the Deer Flat National Wildlife Refuge. Eddie, thanks so much for coming on the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Excited to talk about wildlife. I'm excited to talk about what the refuge does. Um, Started in 1909, if I've got that correct. Um, it's, you guys have been out there for a while. Um, yeah. Any, any historical facts that you can share with us? Yeah. So the refuge was, um, <clears throat> was established by, you know, an interesting fact is the, the refuge was established by, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, the New York canal, uh, was diverted from the Boise area over to create, the Lake Lowell Reservoir um, that was built between 1906 and 1909. Um, I think it was less than two weeks after the reservoir was officially finished that Teddy Roosevelt declared it a national wildlife refuge. Back then they used different terminology, but that's what we would call a national wildlife refuge uh, nowadays. Did he come out to to uh, cut like a ribbon or anything? Do you guys have any, yeah. any photos or anything like that? <laughs> I don't know if he took, if he come out and cut a ribbon, but he, I mean, he did come out and take a look at the reservoir and there, we do have some old refuge uh, photos at the refuge of him being there and, and when it was established. And so other things about Deer Flat, so Deer Flat National Wildlife Refuge um, is, is actually consists of two units. And so we have the Lake Lowell unit, which is um, the 9,000 acre lake, which is 6,000 acres of open water and 3,000 acres of repairing habitat. And then we have a little over 1,500 acres of upland habitat, but we also manage over 100 islands in Snake River that start around Celebration Park in Idaho and go, go all the way up north of Ontario, Oregon. Um, that's just a kind of a fact that most people don't realize about the refuge. Um, and then Oh, geez. Historical. Uh, I think it was 1976 uh, of note was um, uh, uh, a Clint Eastwood movie was filmed. And I think it was 1979, actually, like a Clint Eastern Eastwood movie was filmed at the uh, upper dam. <laughs> oh, really? Do you know which one? I uh, Bronco Billy. <laughs> Bronco yeah. Billy. Not no disrespect to the Clint Eastwood fans out there, but I, I'm unfamiliar with that one. Yeah, so I, I don't know that I've even seen it, but uh, we have a nice little plaque there and at the upper dam, and uh, yeah, and it talks a little bit about it. Very cool. So a lot, I mean, that's some pretty interesting history. Yeah, I mean, it's old. I mean, golly, that's why I was trying to really pick out different things. But you know, having been around since 1909, it's. I mean, there's a lot of history uh, at the refuge. Um, in fact, we're just in the final. Uh, the final uh, stages of getting a historical um, document written up that's helping us identify all the historical structures at the refuge and how we can manage them for future use. Yeah. And now obviously there's probably quite a bit of protection for the refuge. Um, Is there also like a historical building or a historical site um, kind of designation that gets put on top of that? Or does kind of the refuge trump everything and say like, you know, it's a refuge, you you can never build around it, you can never change it. Do you know how that works? Yeah. So, you know, within the government, so Deer Flat National Wildlife Refuge, uh, I I am, uh, I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. 
um, with the Antiquities Act, for anybody that's familiar with the Antiquities Act, um, in, in your ch I'm, I'm challenging myself here by throwing this out. I think it's 20 years. Anything over 20 years um, is considered an antique. And so if there are places, things on the refuge that are over 20 years old, they're going to fall under the Antiquities Act. And so that's part of why we're getting the study done is to help preserve those buildings, the structures. We got an old fire tower. The fire tower is actually in a closed area of the refuge, um, but it is a historical uh, a structure. We actually have housing on refuge that some of the staff uh, we offer up to the, some of the staff that work at the refuge or interns or researchers. Um, several of them are are marked as historical buildings. And so um, in order to do anything to them, we have to go through the proper steps to ensure that we're not um, <clears throat> having any adverse effect on those historical structures or whatever it may be. Right, right. Yeah. Um how did you begin come involved with the refuge and what exactly does the refuge manager do or maybe what right because you're so busy what don't you do right <laughs> yeah um i got kind of a long uh i got a long history of how i got up to there so tell me if i'm going too long-winded here for you but uh you know i initially spent eight years in the marine corps uh infantry i got out of the marine corps and had decided that you know i wanted to go to college um i went to virginia tech and ended up becoming a wildlife biologist i was laguardia airports wildlife biologist in new york city working for the usda for about four years then i became a migratory bird biologist out in sacramento and then uh, I do a lot of rock climbing in the California Condor Recovery Program in Southern California. We're looking for a biologist with climbing skills. And so um, uh, I kind of got invited down there to get a little test run. And I went down there and it's actually housed within the Hopper, Mount, Hopper Mountain National Wildlife Refuge. Okay. So the Condor Program is within Hopper Mountain National Wildlife Refuge. And that was my first exposure to refuges. Honestly, I grew up for the most part in Oklahoma never really was exposed to the refuges. And um, given my background in the Marine Corps, I kind of thought refuges kind of fit this little niche area that not a ton of people work in it. Um, and so I just fell in love with refuges at that point. And as a wildlife biologist, I realized I'm getting to have an impact for in, endangered species or whatever it may be. But ultimately, the land management decisions were being made by the refuge manager. And I thought, man, that's really where I want to be. I want to be a, a more holistic um, in my views of how we're going to manage the area rather than uh, focused on a single species. And so uh, that drove me to get into refuge management. And so I, I actually was the assistant refuge manager down at Tijuana Slough in San Diego Bay um national wildlife refuges in san diego and uh and then took this position up here and i i love it there you go well so for our listeners who are thinking like well uh that sounds like an amazing area and an amazing place to be um connected to to nature and um just experience what the refuge has to offer how would they go about, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but how would they go about maybe applying or um, do they have to go through, what what agency would they go through to see what openings are available? 
Yeah, so for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or, or government jobs in general, um, for folks that are interested, you can find the standards for the position and the position types at uh, a website that's called opm.gov and I oper operational something management. Um, but if you're specifically looking for jobs that are available, usajobs.gov okay. is a website that you can go to and look at them. And when you see positions on there, you'll actually see the requirements. So for a wildlife biologist, for instance, it requires so many semester credits of botany, uh, ornithology, or, or whatever it may be. And right. so there's a, a list of standards that you have to meet in order to become to get a position there. You know, I was looking on Wikipedia about the refuge, and I I saw that it was ten thousand five hundred acres. What are some of the other challenges that go into managing that amount of uh, of land? Well, anybody that's um, from the the Treasure Valley area of Idaho or, or has spent some time, or if you haven't been here in a while, you might be really shocked to find out that we're a very rapidly growing area. Yes. Um, and so I would say one of our biggest challenges right now are educating folks on on the refuge, what they're established for, um, and, and taking ownership of it. Uh, as we get new folks moving into the area, I think a lot of those folks see this big body of water and it's, it's Lake Lowell. It's, a, it's uh, an opportunity to get out on your boat, go water skiing, do whatever recreational opportunity you have. Um, but what, what's a challenge for us is to make sure that we, we are clear with everybody that we're also a national wildlife refuge. And the National Wildlife Refuges were established uh, to be a protection spot for wildlife in general. Um, you know, especially with the Treasure Valley, as it keeps growing and growing, we're going to be seeing the green spaces go away. And so this is an opportunity for a space that's protected. Uh, it's, it's managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and it's an opportunity for folks to come out and enjoy wildlife while recreating and doing other things. Um, the pressures that people are putting on the land are some of our biggest issues, whether it's going in the closed areas of the refuge where we're doing restorations and we're trying to keep the vegetation from being trampled to just leaving trash everywhere. Um, so, again, for us, it's it's making sure that folks know that we're a national wildlife refuge and that we're there for wildlife, uh, you know, like National Park Service, BLM. That's for those areas are for people and wildlife. Refuges were set aside for wildlife. And as we as as it's progressed, 1909 being some of the first ones that were established, as we progressed, we've started to include human use of those refuges. But in order for us to preserve this land for the future, we have to figure out how um, how to get the general public that use the refuges to take ownership of it and respect it for what it is. And again, that's a wildlife sanctuary. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing the distinction between BLM land and refuge land. And, you know, now that I'm listening to you talk about it, 10,000 plus acres probably 
is not a ton of room if you know one of the species that's on the refuge is is like a, a hawk or something that can cover mm-hmm. like an incredible amount of land or maybe has like a a large hunting area to make sure that it's uh, it can feed itself and its young. So speaking of that, are, what what are some of the species that you'll find out on the refuge? Uh, are there any endangered species? Uh, any invasive species? What do you have going on out there? We have over 20 different uh, species of mammals. And when it comes to birds, I don't know the exact number that have been documented, but I, it's well over 200. So there's, you know, there, there's an opportunity to see, you know, the sky's the limit almost, especially with birds. Um, but, you know, as somebody that's, I've been the refuge manager for going on three years now, and for the first time the other day, I saw a badger on refuge. So you kind of get surprised here and there with that. Um, uh, one of the things I definitely would love to highlight about, uh, deer flat and what we do have going on is we have the largest breeding population of Western grebes in the state of Idaho. Um, why that's of note is, uh, in the state of Idaho, Western grebes have been considered, um, species of special concern for some time now, which means that their population numbers are dwindling and so we're, we're concerned about it so this is one of the last steps before it becomes a threatened or endangered species and um federally last year they were listed as a federal species of special concern because the entire united states population of western grebes or grebes in general is plummeting so we uh we so on deer flat we have the largest breeding population in all of idaho so um, very interesting bird, really cool to watch. Uh, they're called water birds. And if you don't know what water birds are, what that means is they can only take off and land in the water. If they're on land, they do not have the ability to take off. Um, and they cannot land on, on hard surfaces. Um, and when they do their mating ritual, if you're out on the lake, what you'll see is they'll start dancing together. And it's one of the coolest things that you'll get to see out there if you're out there during the breeding season. Yeah. Uh, Deer Flats uh, National Wildlife Refuge is widely renowned for its bird watching. And I can attest to this. There's nothing better than um, going out to, I believe it's the, the main um, the main center. And then you, you kind of veer off to the right and there's these picnic tables and there's these giant, um, maple trees, huge maple trees. And you sit down and you pull out your binoculars and you can look out over, um, over, uh, what Lake Lowell and um, there's like these three piers out there. Um, I don't know if those are specifically for nests, but I think on the top pier there's a... Yeah, it's an osprey. Osprey, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So you can watch them kind of like buzzing each other, and it's just, it's incredible um, just yeah. what's at your fingertips out there. So I highly recommend, you know, people who haven't been out to the to center to do that. Uh, one thing of note on that is our friends group, which I believe we're going to talk about, our friends group have... Um, I've worked with them and they had it before I got here, but we just switched it out. We got a live camera on that. And if you go to their webpage, you can actually click on a link and see um, the there's a camera on the nest. And so you can see them feeding the young or whatever. That's awesome. Uh, when's when's a good busy season for bird watching? Say if you're going to come out um, and, and you want to see them in person as opposed to the webcam. Yeah. So, um, you know, 
what's interesting, uh, birders are a very interesting group of people. I'm a birder too. So I, I'm, I think I could say that <laughs> <laughs> and really it depends on what you're looking for. You know, you, if you're not a birder, uh, just to give you a little bit of insight is birders have what's called life lists and a life list is you're trying to see as many birds as you can um, during your lifetime. And so I think that question is dependent on the species you want to see. Um, you want to be out there May through July. If you're wanting to see you know, the, the water birds mating or nesting. Um, and if you want to see um, just a very majestic sight and, and, and tons of waterfowl, you go out there in the winter. Um, no nesting going on, but we got hundreds, of, I mean, thousands of snow geese and they'll pick up and start flying and they're just loud. And it's just one of the neatest things to see. And so, um, you know, it, it, we, we have a pretty impressive bird list the entire year. And really, all you need as far if if you want to consider yourself uh, a birder, um, all you need is what like a pair of, of binoculars and some friends. Is that that's really yeah. it, right? I, I recommend a pair, you know, at least a, a even if it's a cheaper pair, a pair of binoculars and then a guidebook. Um, and uh, at the, we you were you were referencing our visitor center earlier. We have a visitor center. Um, that as long as we have staff, it's it's open. So it's normally open Monday through Friday, eight to five, uh, eight to four. Okay. And you can actually uh, borrow a pair of binoculars. But um, the reason why binoculars are important, uh, especially when you're looking at smaller species, is because what you're trying to do is identify different color patterns or beak size or something like that. And and so then you just start comparing the notes within the book. Yeah. How how would you tell if it was a Western greed? Uh, <laughs> um, I, the, so the Western Greaves are, golly, you put me on the spot here trying to describe <laughs> this. Um, I would call them more sleek looking, like submarine looking. Uh, they sit makes sense. lower in the water as they're swimming. Yeah. Um, they've got a longer head and they're black and white. Um, there is another species out there called the Clark's Grebe as well that will be swimming around with them. They're actually pretty hard to tell the difference. And it's a, it, the one of the main differences for myself different birders have different ways they tell things for me the difference between the two is the black that goes around the eye versus over the eye i see so it, it can be minor minor distinctions between two absolutely, completely different absolutely. wow um what's what's on your list what's the number one bird on your list if you're gonna to kind of you know really mark a really cool one off or a highly sought after bird um, wow, that's a good, that's a very good question. Um, again, I think it depends on what area you're coming from. So, yeah. uh, for me specifically, uh, I think I, I, I saw a spotted sandpiper the other day. That was really neat. I just get excited when I see new stuff, but you know, we have tons of bald eagles. That's a good, that's a good one. I love kingfishers. We actually have a hiking trail called the Kingfisher trail. Um, you'll see them out there. Uh, one of, one of the things I would highly recommend folks do that have interest in birding is you can go on to eBird, which is a website and you can sign up for, um, uh, 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 alerts. And so if somebody's out there and, and thousands and thousands of people use this eBird and for the folks that are using it at Deer Flat, if they see something and they mark it on there, 
if it's a unique bird, it'll send you an email and say, hey, you know, a western snowy plover was seen over in this area. And you can go over there and, and try to spot it yourself as well. Wow. I know so, I, didn't answer, I didn't answer your question, but I tried. <laughs> no, no. So you're you're on this eBird app and, and you say like, wow, you, you saw something pretty cool, like say like a bald eagle. And all of a sudden, is there ever like an instance where like then all of a sudden people are just like pulling up? <laughs> you know, oh, they're yeah. just really that's cool. Well, I've, n- I've never had for myself anybody pull up right away, but I've pulled up the shore and seen 20 birders looking and I, as the refuge manager, I try to interact with people as best I can to just, you know, one, get a pulse on what's going on. And I just like hearing, you know, what they're enjoying. And they'll say, oh, you know, we somebody reported this and we're trying to find it. And so you, you, and, and it was only reported a few hours ago. And so that's why I was saying different people get excited about different species. And so if it's a species that excites you, it, you know, that's you can get hundreds of people that come looking for that bird specifically. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned earlier that the refuge falls under the jurisdiction of the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, I, I think you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what are what are some of the pros and cons of that relationship? The Fish and Wildlife Service is staffed by just very passionate people that want to preserve this this land for for the species that were, you know, every refuge is is established for different reasons. Deer Flat was established for migratory birds for a sanctuary for migratory birds um you know some refuges i've worked at you know i was uh hopper mountain national wildlife refuge in california was established for the california condor very specifically mm-hmm. so uh you know for me it's it's a it's a pro that in that respect that it is operated by the u.s fish and wildlife service um, and, and another pro to that is, is that we can be sure that that land is being protected. Right. So right. if it were, if it were a refuge and it was owned by a private entity, they could always sell that off if it's not on an easement or something. And so I, I think that that gets, you know, I think it's a, I actually think it's a really good relationship and I might be biased because I work for the fish and wildlife service, but I work with a lot of really passionate people that, 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 dedicate their lives to preserving these lands and these species for others, for other people's, um, uh, enjoyment. Yeah. And that's something you just can't fake. I mean, when you work with passionate people and they're passionate about the position, it it just makes it better for everybody. at least in my experience, I think. I, I would agree. Um, are there are groups uh, that help maintain the refuge? Um, maybe not in official capacity, but the Friends of Deer Flat Nile, uh, National Wildlife Refuge. Um, how important is volunteerism to provide support? Um, I cannot overstate the importance of volunteer volunteerism on refuges across the United States, national parks, Bureau of Land Management areas. You hit the nail on the head the folks that are willing to come out and do work for us and work with us to get stuff done is just, it, it, I'm not even joking. I'm getting tingles thinking about it right now because it it helps me tremendously to be able to shift focus to higher priority um, things that need to be done on refuge versus lower priority um, and prioritization doesn't even matter. It just allows me to do more things. And yeah. I would say you would be hard pressed to find a refuge manager across the United States that would not just get a little bit elevated about volunteers. Um, the friends of Deer Flat Wildlife Refuge are 
uh, a group that um, that help us out tremendously with, for instance, we just had the directorate from Washington DC team come down and we put on a lunch for them and just showed them what the refuge was all, all about. And the, and the friends of Deer Flat Wildlife Refuge were the ones that put the whole lunch together and coordinated the whole thing. I mean, they do everything at the refuge from change dog pot stations to mow large areas of the refuge. And so we, without them, it would be so tough. So I absolutely cannot understate how important they are to the entire refuge system, to the entire National Park Service BLM. Um, the list goes on. Yeah. And it's really cool to see the community to come together to to support Deer Flat National Wildlife Refuge. And then and then in turn, the refuge then improves the community. How how in what perspective have you seen the the refuge uh, enrich maybe the lives of, of maybe school children coming out or um, people who just want to become more in touch with nature. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So, you know, we get a, we get a lot of folks, whether it be school groups or, or uh, you know, older, uh, older generations that are just coming out um, and helping us out with the project or something. But when, when, when they come out and they see what's going on, uh, they're kind of amazed because, again, National Wildlife Refuges are, are something that a lot of people don't know about. But they um, they come out and it gets them excited about the refuge, about what's going on out there, about biology. Um, and and again, to kind of go back to what I was talking about earlier with the Treasure Valley growing so rapidly and we're losing green spaces if you know that's where we're an asset to the community is that we're we're a space where you can come out you can connect with nature you can you know it's it's um an area you can come out and work on your mental health uh because you're outside and you're seeing birds and yeah it's it's just a whole experience and so you know that's where i would see how we're a community asset is is providing an area for people to come out and and if they just need a place to reflect come reflect or if they're looking for a nice hike for for health reasons um it we we kind of provide a little bit of everything yeah i um I was out a um, couple weeks ago, maybe it's been a little bit more recent, but I witnessed firsthand uh, a group uh, that came out. I think they were maybe a local school group and the um, Snake River Birds of Prey were out there. Uh-huh. And oh my goodness, were those little guys pumped. They were just like, oh, we can't wait. And they had a, a horned owl and then they had, I want to say like a red-tailed hawk. Yeah. And they were just blown away and all kinds of really cool questions that that for, at least for me I felt like they were engaged and they were really thinking about nature um which was just awesome to to watch um what are there other programs that are out there that get youngsters involved with conservation and nature yeah for deer flat we you know again given our staffing situation it's hard to have very robust program as far as school programs coming we do work with the local community. Um, we have teachers that we work with to produce uh, lesson plans that revolve around doing work at the refuge. Um, so, so there are programs like that, but that's more than what we try to do is work with teachers to get folks to come out. And right now, 
the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a big initiative. We have a big initiative where we're, uh, we have what's called the Urban Wildlife Conservation Program. And what we're trying to do is connect with communities that may have barriers that keep them from coming to the refuge, uh, whether it be transportation or, or whatever it keeps, uh, whatever, whatever that barrier is. <clears throat> and we're trying to provide access, um, easier access, be more welcoming. We want people to come out and be safe. And so with that program, as we build it more and more, we will, we should in the future have more programs for uh, available for school uh, children. And so I don't know if I'm answering your question well, but I, what I would say is we do have school programs that are led by teachers that we help facilitate. Mm -hmm. uh, and we are planning to try to grow a little bit on that. That's fantastic. Um, and then also for everybody, you mentioned just for you know, your mental health, it's great to get outside and, and exercise. And I, I think you're a hundred percent right on that. Um, are there serious trails out there at the refuge that could provide like a scenic kind of workout? Um, and then also just for our listeners, what, what things can't you do out there? Not to be Debbie Downer or anything, but we just <laughs> want to make sure that we're very considerate of, um, the, the, the environment that we're in and, and also, you know, to the first priority, which would be the, the wildlife. Yeah. So we have, uh, over by the visitor center and forgive me, I don't have the exact number of trails on the refuge. I want to say 15 miles total trails. Um, I hope I'm not making that up, <laughs> but we have, if you go over to the Gotts point area or Teo lane parking areas, um, you have the East Dyke Trail, you have the Kingfisher Trail, you have the Gotts Point Trail, um, and they all, if you really wanted to, you could link all of them together in, in one in and out um, hike. And, you know, on a hot day like this, definitely bring a lot of water and be prepared yes. uh, for, for, you know, the worst um, weather-wise. Uh, but you, yeah, I mean, you could spend a lot of time out there. And like I said, the birding along all three of those, especially the Kingfisher trail, just amazing birding. Um, so you can get out there, you can hike, get your exercise and enjoy the refuge, the wildlife that's on the refuge over by the visitor center. We have another series of trails that go, that are kind of scattered all juxtaposed all together through there. And again, just great birding. Um, if you're into plants, tons of plants out there. Uh, what you can't do at the refuge is we do have closed air of the refuge. I would, th th there's a couple of things. I'll, 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 I'll try to pick kind of my two biggest um, frustrating uh, rules that are broken at the refuge. One is we do require all dogs to be on leash. And we do that because for the protection of other people and other animals. Um, we do have a lot of ground nesting birds out there, especially during breeding season. And when the when the dogs run around, they can disturb those birds. We've also had dog on dog attacks and we've had dog attacking people attacks. And, you know, I, I get it. Everybody's dog is is the best behaved dog in the world. Um, but we we we're, we don't we don't discriminate. We want all all we want all dogs to be on leashes um, and. Uh, so that's I, I, I'll so not to be Debbie Downer, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, and then the other one is getting off trail and going in the closed areas of the refuge. There are clear the, there are signs that are clearly marked. The area behind the sign is closed and we get a lot of people that go back there again. Part of why we're protecting those areas 
is because we do we do want to be welcoming. We want people to come. We want them to come and enjoy the refuge, but we also want to provide an area for wildlife to not be disturbed. That's what those closed areas are for. They're for the wildlife to be able to have undisturbed areas. Yeah. So, you know, people will just use our common sense, right? And be respectful, basically. <laughs> so to keep the dogs on the leash. And if it says don't go in there, don't go in there. Just, you know, <laughs> yeah, be um, cool about it. Yeah. Um, so you said you've been at the uh, refuge for, you said about three years. I've been uh, the re- I've been at this refuge going on three years. Three years. Um, what are some of the highlights, at least for you, during your tenure there? For me, one of the one of my favorite things is when I have a chance to get out of the office and go do bird surveys. We don't have a biologist right now, so I I do our bird surveys as well, and and just getting out there. And when you see the grebes doing their mating ritual, I, I, that that is literally I, it. Might I don't know. Some people might not think that's a great highlight. For me, it's amazing. That's one of the highlights. Um, another highlight would be just working with the, the staff I do have. They all work so hard and they get a lot of things done. And, and recently we had put in to be designated a priority urban refuge um, and we nailed it and made it out of 30 refuges. We were in the top five of Congratulations. refuges to be selected. Yeah, thank you. And so that's a big highlight. And um, with that designation really will help uh, us in capacity to be able to grow our program with the community as it's growing. So not grow from a geographic boundary, but grow in the ability to to handle the pressures and provide a safe experience for visitors on the refuge. Yeah. Um, are there any invasive species uh, kind of in the Treasure Valley and then specifically to to your um, refuge? And then and then are there things that we need to do to know about those? And can we mitigate some of those risks um and i was thinking about this as we were talking about the 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 opportunities on refuge and i was talking about closed areas as well right um staying on trail is a huge help because uh one of the things that we do suffer from are a lot of invasives um number i i would say and this could be arguable but i don't know that anybody would argue it too much but the number one invasive species in this entire area is cheatgrass um and so if you've ever walked through the the taller grass areas and get all the little what I call foxtails, like um, little pointy things into your um, your socks, that's that's coming from cheap grass. And it's everywhere. It's it's so prevalent. It's not you know, you kind of lose sight that it's even there. Um, but when you walk on trails and, and this is a really good thing for folks, if you're going anywhere, you know, if you if you hop on, if you have hiking boots with a little bit of mud on it, you throw them in the bag and you hop in a plane and you go from Boise, Idaho to upstate New York in the Adirondacks and you're hiking around, you're risking spread, spreading a seed of a plant in an area that can't sustain it. You know, the problem with invasive species is when they establish themselves one of the main reasons they become so prolific is there no there are no natural predators to that species because it's in an area where it's never nothing's developed and so that's what we deal a lot with on refuges along the hiking trails i think i mentioned it but if i didn't goat heads would be a big one you know oh, you have a goat, goat heads yeah. they're awful yeah you have a goat head on your shoe and you and you go out for a hike and you walk along the trail and it plants itself and we already know how those goes you know those things grow gangbuster and 
Um, so, so we have, I mean, I, I would easily say, I would say that we easily have over well over 20 invasive species of plant on the refuge. We've got scotch thistle, Russian thistle, uh, Russian olive, um, tumble mustard. I'm using some slang for some of these too, by the way, white briny, um, reed canary grass. It, it is a never ending battle. Um, we actually, a year and a half ago, went through an exercise, got a bunch of experts together from this area, and we did a workshop and tried to identify the top five species that we needed to control. Now, that might not be a species that it, you see everywhere on refuge. It's more of a species. We put higher priority on species that aren't here yet that could become prolific. Um, so it's a little bit about eradication versus management and i'll, I'll stop there because i could get really deep into that but <laughs> no i love it man i love it um so as you know uh it's been a little bit dry the past few years and yes. uh, we were super lucky um in my opinion this spring to get uh quite a bit of rainfall and i know the snowpack's not there and i think we're still and uh, drier than we'd like to be um but what what impacts has the drier than usual weather had on the land and, and some of the wildlife? Well, uh, you know, as I stated earlier, Deer Flat is 9,000 acres uh, when the water year is good. 9,000 acres of open water, or sorry, 6,000 acres of open water, 3,000 acres of riparian habitat. So one of the main differences that we see from a habitat standpoint is is the reservoir the, the water's lower. And mm. specifically this year, I can point to that the smart weed that you'll see in, in the river, um, sorry, inside uh, in Lake Lowell unit, uh, this year it, it, it was delayed in its growth for a while, which to fishermen is a big deal because that smart weed is prime fish habitat inside there. And so, you know, that, it, our upland habitat doesn't get affected that much by the drought. Um, I think from a fire standpoint this year, that's of concern as well, because we do, you know, especially with those late season rains, everything greened up, grew tall. And now we're getting this very hot, dry weather. And um, that that could potentially be an issue for us yeah. uh, by the end of the year or the end of the summer. Yeah. Um, for someone who's never been to the refuge, um, if you could say like, well, if you've never been, this is what I would do for my first uh, trip or maybe a couple hours or maybe a whole day. What activities or events would you recommend that would give kind of like the best representation of, of what the refuge has to offer? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I like that question making me think i would say you know come to the visitor center chat with us we got folks that are there whether the volunteers you might catch me i stay pretty busy but i will always stop and talk to folks that have questions come to the visitor center we got a really nice visitor center it's older but um it, it's nice we got a lot of uh displayed birds that you'll see around the refuge there's a lot of information in there our friends group has a store in there um where you can buy merchandise uh, hats with greaves on it um other things from the refuge books about the history you can even buy birding books in there um stop in take a look at the visitor center and then walk out on the trail go look at the osprey nest walk around and just enjoy what you're seeing out there and you'll see a lot of it 
one of our volunteers um, that's on the, the board of our friends group um, has put a ton of work into doing some sagebrush restoration. And you, you'll see that when you go out there. Bob Christensen's done a lot of that where he'll um, where they planted the, uh, all it towards the um, the boat ramp side of the visitor center. And so, you know, it's just getting out there and seeing that and appreciating that. And, and I know also there's a birding blind that's kind of hidden into the trees back there that you can walk into, shut the door. It's fully enclosed. You can open up a little window and you can, you never know what kind of songbird you're going to see in there. That would be one, in my opinion, one of the better first experiences at the refuge. And then from there, just branching out to the trails and seeing what there is out there, you know, it's, um, every day is a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it seems, I mean, you have some pretty incredible knowledge, um, and, and are doing a great job articulating what the, uh, refuse has to offer, but say like your next call, you, you pick up the phone and they say, Hey, you know, uh, I've got a few extra bill just laying around, uh, collecting dust billion that is and and we want to invest in the refuge awful problem right um infrastructure or or whatever you think eddie is the best uh and then they they hang up the phone and then uh, sure enough it it's it's the real deal this is all fictitious obviously but what what would you do and why uh i think one of the bigger things i would do high party i mean i could there i could we could sit here for another hour and i tell you everything <laughs> um and, and you know i could probably just pick out a top three but I, I think one of the number one um you know out of the top three in no particular order but the number one uh, that i would say that just hits to my mind is i would really love to work on making the trails and the refuge more accessible um, I would love to see us be able to get some more um, ADA compliant fishing docks. I just want to make sure that it's equitable to everybody to be able to come and enjoy the refuge. And I'll open me, openly admit right now that there's areas of refuge that just aren't accessible to everybody. Um, that would be one of my highest priorities. I, it's interesting you asked that and that popped into my head immediately. So I'm going to go with that one. Nice. No, that's, that's, that's excellent. Um, so we talked about volunteerism and how, how important it is. Um, where can people go to learn more about the refuge, some of the programs, and then how can they get involved, whether it's like, um, friends of Deer Flat or, um, maybe just directly volunteer and kind of coordinate with your people. So, First and foremost, you know, as I was saying, is if you if you're on refuge, come to the visitor center. If we're open, a lot of yeah. information there. You can chat with one of us. Um, the Friends of Deer Flat Wildlife Refuge have a website that you can go to that has information on it. We have a website you can go to that has information on it. You can always call us um, to ask um, any questions that you may have if you're unsure about if you're in an area that's that. Uh, if you're unsure about that, you can go into an area, call and ask us. We'd be mm -hmm. more than happy to show you or talk it through. But um, those are kind of the, or just what comes to mind about information and, and getting involved. You know, you can reach out to us. Uh, we actually have uh, a generic deer flat uh, email address and it's deer flat at fws.gov. That's big Fox whiskey, Sierra F or Fish and Wildlife Service, fws.gov. 
And um, it, for folks that are interested in volunteering at the refuge, just send us an email. Um, we do have a volunteer coordinator. Uh, her name is Adriana, and she will she'll she'll get back with you and and probably have some questions and and see what you'd like to do on the refuge, what you're interested in volunteering in, and um, and all we got to do is have you fill out a little bit of volunteer service agreement paperwork, and and you're you're ready to go. You can come and help us with whatever projects we have going on right now uh, through the summer, especially every Thursday from nine to noon, we just have an open invitation to people that want to volunteer. Just come to the visitor center and you never know what you're going to be doing. Last week we were painting picnic tables. The week before that, we're picking up sticks in the really heavily wooded area that just inundated um, with fire fuels. And so uh, through the summer, it's been pretty great. because we've had a lot of young folks involved, which has been, been amazing. And, um, so there's, there's multiple different ways to get involved. Um, even if you just want to donate money to your national wildlife refuge system that, you know, that helps tremendously. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And just to clarify the number up to the visitor center is 208-467-9278. Yes. Anything else we want to tell the listeners? Uh, I would just say, if you're interested in coming out to the refuge, please do enjoy it. Enjoy it responsibly. And um, if, the, if if you see anything out there that you you feel like we should know about, let us know. But um, we we are here for the wildlife, and we want people to enjoy the wildlife. And so I, I just want everybody to know that everybody's welcome, and and we want you to have a good time, and and just you know just enjoy the refuge in a responsible way. Thank you for coming on the program and, and taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me.